welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. As we come to the end of Acts chapter 18, Paul is concluding his second missionary journey, and he'll soon be on his third and final missionary journey. As was his custom, uh, Paul returns to ascending church. Paul is going back to the church in Antioch, the very church that sent him out. So if you ever wonder why missionaries show up every once in a while to their home churches here in the States, well, it starts with the Apostle Paul. Antioch is the church that sent him out, so Antioch, he will return to report what has happened on the second missionary journey. The Bible tells us that as Paul leaves Corinth, where he begins to conclude his missionary journey, he goes back with some new friends. I think Aaron introduced you to them last week, um, Aquila and Priscilla. They were new friends, they were fellow tent makers, and now they were partners in ministry. And on the way home, the Bible tells us um, in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 23, that as Paul heads back to Antioch, he stops for a haircut. Did you see that? Acts chapter 18 uh, and verse 18, it says, when he came to a city, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. Perhaps Paul had, there's some speculation here of exactly what happened there, uh, but just to make a note of it, because that's an interesting fact that Luke includes for us, uh, perhaps he had undertaken a Nazarite Nazarite vow, uh, perhaps in thankfulness for the Lord uh, working in his life and sparing him in Corinth. We're not exactly sure what was all going on there, but he was on some sort of vow, uh, a fasting, if you will, where he would let his hair grow and probably would abstain from alcohol and certain things um, during that time. Um, And so Paul is kind of ending that vow, um, cuts his hair at that city as he heads back home to Antioch. And the Bible tells us in verse 22, he landed at Caesarea, uh, and he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. Some think here, just, just some fun tidbits here, that as the Bible says in verse 22, that he went up and greeted the church, at, uh, greeted the church and then he went down to Antioch. Uh, that language may mean that Paul went to Jerusalem, because the people on that day would talk about going up to Jerusalem. So perhaps he went to Jerusalem to kind of conclude this vow that he had taken of some sort. We don't know for sure. That's just some some speculation, but just wanted to point that out to you. And he goes back to Antioch, and then soon later he begins his third missionary journey at the end of uh, verse 23 of chapter 18. He begins to go back through the places that he went on his other journey, strengthening the churches that had been planted on those previous missionary journeys. But we're introduced to a city in the meantime. And so Paul is concluding that he's going on his next missionary journey, but we're we're introduced to a city that will become very important for Paul in his third missionary journey. In fact, he'll spend uh, two plus years uh, ministering in, in that city. The city could be described, I haven't told you the name of the city yet, but you can see it in the text, but the, the city could be described something like this. Think, think with me for a minute. If, if you wanted to go to, to a city to see art, you, let's stay within the United States. Perhaps you can think of a few cities. I think maybe of Chicago. They have a wonderful art museum there and other art that happens throughout, um, throughout that city. So if you want to go to a city of, for art, you might go to Chicago. If you wanted to go to a city for food, you might go to New Orleans. So you, you're here right now. Uh, if you wanted to go to a city where you see world cultures kind of come together and you see arts and entertainment and all these world cultures come together, you might go to maybe New York. 
If you wanted to go to a city to see politics, well, maybe you'd go to New Orleans as well, but perhaps you'd go to Washington, D.C. If you wanted to see a city of religion, maybe this one as well, but if you want to go to a city, let's think outside of the United States, you might go to the Vatican or something like that, that you want to see a a city that's completely religious in, in that way. If you wanted to go to a city of licentiousness, you might go to Vegas. If you wanted all of this in Paul's day, you would go to the city of Ephesus. Artemis was the goddess, Tony Reinke tells us, of fertility, magic, and astrology. And her temple was what made Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, into a collecting pool for every form of superstition. So that city attracted, he says, magicians, witches, necromancers, all from across the known world. And while it was the epicenter of exorcism and necromancy and magic for all of Asia, it also enticed criminals, politicians, finance people, religious leader, and artists, so much so that in one metropolis, we see today what we see in cities all around the world converged in that one metropolis. And this is the city of Ephesus. This is the city that we read about earlier where Paul leaves Aquila and Priscilla, as he heads home, they stay in Ephesus for a while. And he says, if the Lord wills, because the people wanted him to say, please stay in Ephesus with us. No, I'll leave you, Aquila and Priscilla. I'm going to travel home. And if God says the same, if God wills, I will come back to you. And later we'll see God does will and God sends him back to Ephesus where he will spend some two years. So that's where we are. We're in, we're going to get to Ephesus and that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, in this city that would become a, a very special place for Paul, where he would spend a couple of years. It was this city where Priscilla and Aquila began putting down roots and that Paul would eventually connect them to. And I read this passage a second ago, but you read this passage as, as I did earlier in the week, and I'm thinking, okay. We're talking about Apollos. We're talking about these disciples of John. There's a lot there. We're talking about these necromancers, these magicians and the sons of Sceva that we read about. Where do we go with a passion, with a, with a, with, with a passage like this? Here's what I want to do with you this morning, all right? Uh, Nick, go ahead and put that slide on the screen. This, you, you can't see this very, you might be able to see some of this. Don't worry about reading it. I'm going to give you one when you leave today. This is called the sword method of studying the Bible. I'm going to use this as our method this morning to walk through this passage with you. And in the meantime, kind of a byproduct of this, I hope to equip you so that when you come to passages of Scripture, you have a method that you can discover what the Bible is saying so that you don't get caught up maybe in quiet time or personal study or small groups as you go through passages of Scripture. Here are six questions you could ask of every passage in Scripture that you will be able to see what the Lord is trying to show us. Are you with me? You follow along there? So we're going to go through that this morning. I'll explain that here just in, in, in a moment. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so as we walk through this, the reason it's called the sword method is, is because the word of God is 
living and active, it'll expose us and open us up and, and, and reveal God to us and reveal ourselves to us and how then we should live in light of Scripture. So are you ready? The sword is pointing up. And so the first thing we want to see is what does this passage, all of these verses that we've talked about, you can do shorter passages on your own, but we're doing a big passage this morning. What does this passage tell us about God? What do we learn about God in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through chapter 19, verse 20? Because all of Scripture, we want to start here, right? Because all of Scripture is God revealing himself to us, making himself known to us. So we go to a passage of Scripture like this and God, God, who are you? What are you showing me of who you are? Let me point out just a few things. You might see some other things, but let me point out a few things that we see. So point one of this sermon is, what, does this, what do we learn about God in this passage? A couple things we learn. We learn that God has a will and that God has a way. Paul said earlier in this passage, if God wills, then I will return to Ephesus. So we know something about God here. We know that God has a will and we know that God has a way. We see in verse 26, hopefully you have your Bibles in front of me, in front of you, you can see this, that he explained the way to Paulus, the way of God more accurately to Apollos. In fact, we read in verse 26, we read that in verse 26, and then we read in 19 verse 9 that the congregation was called the way. And so we know that even the people of God are called the way. So God has a way that he calls us to walk. So, so we know that about God. And, and, and here's what else we know about God. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. What else do we know about God? That he saved people. Listen to what it says here. So Apollos goes back to, to Corinth to minister some folks to people who had, through grace, had believed. The God who has a will and a way saves us, not by works, but he actually comes to us and he saves us by grace. It's all grace from the top to the bottom. Uh, That God is not seeing if we can find our own way, but he himself is the way for us. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father through him. How good is our God that he has a will, he has a way. He makes himself known to us through grace and saves us through grace and opens our eyes through grace. That's good news, right? This is what we see in the scripture. There's some other things that we see about God in this passage. We see that God puts people in our lives. We see with Aquila and Priscilla, we, we read about Apollos who was boldly preaching the word of God. He was telling the things of Jesus, but he didn't quite know them fully. And we'll talk about that more in a second. So he puts people in his, lot, in his life, namely these fellow tent makers, these people that Paul had left in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla. God puts people in our lives to show us more fully the way of Christ. He puts people in our lives to help us grow in grace, to grow in knowledge of him. And this also means that God puts us in people's lives. Not only does he put people in my life, but he puts me in people's lives in order that we might show them Christ more clearly. We have a good God, don't we? That does all of this. We read in this passage that God has a kingdom. Chapter 19, verse 8 We read this, that he was persuading them, Paul was in the synagogue, about the kingdom of God. So we know that God has a kingdom and God has a mission. The king himself has come to rescue his people. 
Everything that we long for is found in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about Jesus, our king, establishing his rule and reign over all creation, bringing order to all, and being worshipped as Lord. And so what do we learn about God in this passage? We learn that he has a will in a way that he's full of grace and mercy. And one way that he shows that is by showing us the way, by opening the eyes, our eyes, putting people in our lives. And we also know that God does extraordinary things. Chapter 19, verse 11, do you see it there? And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So it tells us that God uses us to do extraordinary things, but it's God himself that does extraordinary things. And so we have a God who is willing. We have a God who is able. We have a God who is not mocked here, who is to be feared among the nations, who is to be extolled. And we have a God who saves us by grace. We have a powerful God, a gracious God, that is slow to anger, that's rich in loving kindness, that comes to us and puts people in our lives to point us to Christ. That's good news, isn't it? So that's what we learn about God. By asking that one question of this passage, do you think you could do that as when you go home today, read a passage of Scripture and go through it and say, God, show me yourself. What do I see about God in this passage? I, I think you could. The bottom of the handle is people. So what does this passage, this sort of the Spirit tell us about God, and, and what does this passage tell us about people? Because we know that the Scripture not only reveals to us who God is, but also reveals something in us, doesn't it? It reveals who we are. The Bible exposes our hearts, our thoughts, and our attitudes, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. So what does this Bible, what does this passage tell us about people? Let me give you some things. Maybe you heard it as I read that passage earlier. We find that some people are competent in the Scriptures, but still need to grow. When Paul leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, they find this man, Apollos, who is from Alexandria. Not Alexandria, Louisiana, you know this, right? Um, But by one of the greatest learning centers in all of the ancient world. They had a wonderful library. They translated the Bible into Greek, which was known as the Septuagint. So, much learning was coming out of Alexandria. So Apollos was a sharp dude. And, but, and he, knew, he knew plenty about Scripture, but he was missing something. And so this tells us something about ourselves. No matter how competent and smart and put together we are, perhaps we still need to grow. Perhaps we still need to be discipled. So this tells us about something, something about us that people still need to be discipled. No matter how far you've come in your knowledge of Scripture. This also tells us that, listen to me good here, genuine people can be genuinely genuinely lost. Let me say that again. Genuine people can be genuinely lost. Abraham Lincoln was known to say, how many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? Still four. If If you call a tail a leg, it's still a tail. It doesn't become a leg no matter what you call it. If you call yourself a Christian but aren't one, then you aren't one. These people who had followed John, they knew something about the coming Messiah, but they had not heard of Christ yet, and they were still following the old way. They were still religious, but they were not saved. So this tells us about us, doesn't it? That perhaps we've been religious folks following 
in very good attentions, certain people and certain teachers and whatever, but perhaps we have never trusted in Jesus. It doesn't seem that these disciples of John were saved because look what it says in verse 5. On hearing about Christ, they were baptized. And in the, Old, in the New Testament, when people were saved, they were baptized shortly thereafter. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they received the Holy Spirit. So it tells us something about people, that some people still need to grow in their faith, which is all of us. It tells us something about people, no matter what you call yourself, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be saved. It also tells us that sometimes it takes a long time for people to believe the gospel. Paul spent some two years in Ephesus. He spent months after months preaching in the synagogues there. It took a long time for people to come to faith. So maybe there's some people in your life that you've been preaching and teaching and telling of Christ a long time. Keep telling them. It also tells us that people will respond to the gospel one way or the other. Some received the gospel, but some outright rejected the gospel. Some people will become hostile no matter how clearly and reasonable you explain it to them. We see that at the end of verse 9, that they began to speak evil of the church, also known as the way. We also see that people have a hunger. No matter how far off they might be, They have a hunger for a name that is powerful to make a difference in their lives. Even these sorcerers and these magicians, they desired for change and power in their lives that would make a difference. They went about it in all the wrong way. They began to use the name of Christ for their own gain, and and God would have nothing to do with that. But know this, that people have a desire A God-given desire, that is, to hear what might change their lives. So to summarize, no matter the depth of lostness, the name of Jesus is our only hope. No matter the depth of lostness, there is hope. We know something about God. We know something about people. So now, let's see, start to put some of this application together. Are you still with me? Let's look at the specs of the passage. Anytime you look at a, 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 new, a new phone, a new something, you always, what, what are the specs of that? What, what are the details of that passage? We know what it says about God. We know what it says about people. So the first thing, the yes, are there sins to avoid in this passage? Are there any sins to avoid? I don't know about you, but sin is like grass in summer in New Orleans after a week of rain. I cut my dog on grass on Tuesday. You would not know that by Friday. Can anybody testify with me this morning? That's the way it goes right now. It grows fast, not grass, but sin. It grows fast, and the more you let it grow, the harder it is to cut. There's some sin to avoid in this passage. The sin of pride. I think the sin of pride was avoided by Priscilla and Aquila as they see this powerful man preaching Christ in Ephesus, they could have walked in and said, man, that man's an idiot. Apollos doesn't know anything. He's falling short of the full gospel, and we are going to slam him in public. They could have stood up in that synagogue and said, you know, sit down, Apollos. We are the true preachers of the gospel. They avoided the sin of pride, and did you see what they did? They privately took him in and further explained to him the way. 
They avoided the sin of pride. Something else that we see here that uh, perhaps could be implied in this passage, they, they, they avoided the sin of, of jockeying for position. In, in the church, we, we can't be people who try to jockey for position among others to try to say, this would be a struggle for Apollos later. Remember in 1 Corinthians, some said you were baptized by Apollos, some by Paul. So he became this great name in the early church. But early on, Priscilla and Aquila avoided the sin of pride and showed him the way of making much of Christ by privately taking him aside. But we also see the sin of pride displayed with the sons of Sceva. As they go on in Ephesus, they are these uh, Jewish itinerant exorcists. Apparently that was a job back in the day to be an itinerant Jewish exorcist. And so these seven sons of Sceva were that very thing. And so they decided that they were going to use this powerful name of Jesus. God was doing wonderful things. I don't understand all of this, how the aprons and handkerchiefs were saving, were were healing people. That's still crazy to me, but God was doing it for sure. And they wanted that same power. And so they tried to use the name of Christ to make a name for themselves. And the Spirit said, I know Paul, I know Christ, but I don't know you. They tried to use the name of Christ for personal Okay, maybe that's a sin that we can avoid. We're trying to do the church thing and do the Jesus thing in order for us to get what we want, to get our own things. And we want to come to the Lord on our own terms with our own demands, approaching the king as though he was not a king. And approaching him in our own, with our own desires and demands. Power plays have no part in the kingdom. The sons of Sceva were working this power for their own advantage. So we see some sins to clearly avoid, don't we? So we've seen God, we've seen people, we've seen sins to avoid. And so while we flee from sin and run away from sin, what is the P? What are the promises of God that we can cling to? Because I don't know about you, but in a fleeting and passing world, I want to cling to something that is not fleeting like sin, but it is sure and a solid that I can bank my life on, that I can trust with everything that I have. There are promises of God in a world that is passing. When we turn away from sin and cling to the promises of God, we see several things here that God will save anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Acts 2.39 has told us this, and here we see that God is still saving people by grace, and he even goes on to save some magicians and all sorts of people in Ephesus. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and will receive the Holy Spirit, just like the John's disciples in the beginning of chapter 19. The promise of the Holy Spirit. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to John's disciples that are coming from a religious background just as much as it's given to those who confess their sin of the magic arts. They were saved and received the Holy Spirit. So if you grew up religious, you don't have more of the Spirit than the one who grew up in whatever non-religious background. They are filled fully with the same Spirit. That's a promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. We're promised that the Lord does extraordinary things. He grows people like Apollos, Apollos to further knowledge of him. He saves religious people like John's disciples who think they're walking in the right way but are missing the boat. And he has the power to turn the lives of even exorcists and magic artists around. Our God does great things. God saves sinners. That's a promise we can cling to. 
And there's also a promise that the word will not return void. Notice this, Acts chapter 18, verse 28. I'll point this out a couple times. We've seen this all through Acts. The scripture, Acts 18, 28, for he powerfully refuted the, 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 the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. That's what Paul is preaching. Look at 19, verse 10. He continued to preach what? And they heard the, the word of the Lord. And by the time you get to 1920, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We have a promise that if we scatter the seed of the world, word, it will fall on good hearts. It'll spring up finally in some good soil and God will bring a harvest. Keep preaching the word. That's a promise and he will save people like that. That's good news, isn't it? There's sin to avoid. Oh, but there's promises to cling to. Our powerful God who speaks, who saves, who sanctifies. Our God who does great things. And now we start to get in some more of the application as we move to the right side of that sword. So we have God, people, sins to avoid, promises to cling to, promises to trust. We have examples to follow. There's some examples in this passage. We'll briefly go through those. We have the example of Paul. I'll just give you some ideas here. The example of Paul. I'll go where the Lord wills. The example of Priscilla and Aquila to personal and private discipleship, to, to figure out who God's put in your life to help them grow more like Christ. We have the example of Apollos who received that exhortation by the, that couple. He could have said, I know what I'm talking about. I don't care what you have to say. But Apollos was humble enough to receive the exhortation of that couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and become a better preacher for it. We have some bad examples, like the example of the, the stubborn people who began to talk evil about the way. You can walk out of here today and talk evil about people who are following Christ. We have the example of the sons of Sceva, another bad example that we don't want to follow. Trying to use the powerful name of Jesus in the wrong way. Like I said before, coming to Christ as, as though he is not king. Coming with him with our own demands. They called upon the name of Jesus as though it was hocus pocus. And maybe you're doing that this morning. You think that if you give Jesus some lip service, he is obligated to perform for you, just like the sons of Sceva. And maybe you're thinking it's all hocus pocus and it's just a fairy tale. But let me remind you that Jesus is, is historical. He has come. He's actually come. He's taken on flesh. He's died the death that we deserved, and he has risen, and we must do something with that. Either deny it, or believe it. And there's the example of those who believe. This might be my favorite example of all. Go, go ahead and look with me. The example of those who believed. And so Apollos is strengthened. These apostles of John, they, are, they hear that Jesus has come and they believe and they become Christians. The sons of Sceva try to manipulate things, but they are overpowered and and mastered by this guy, and, and they run away from the house naked and wounded. And all this becomes known in Ephesus, which I think if that would happen here this morning, all of River Ridge would know what happened. And fear fell upon them. The name of the Lord was extolled. Listen to verse 18. Listen to this example. Also, many of those who were now believers, believer how? By grace, through hearing the word, 
God does mighty and powerful things. We know that about God. And lo and behold, he does it. These believers, they came, they confessed, and divulged their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came the 50,000 pieces of silver. Do you notice that example? They believed the word, they heard, they know something about themselves, that they are sinners, and they begin to confess their sins, that yes, we have done these things. They've con- they came, they confessed, they divulged, and they burned the ships. They said, there is no turning back. We are done with these books. We are done with the magic arts, and we are cutting off all ways to come back. Isn't this a mark of true discipleship and an example we should follow? That as we follow Christ, our sin lies behind us. We need to burn all of those ships that might bring us back in the way that is not pleasing to the Lord. So is that example you're willing to follow? Maybe that's where you are this morning. You know that the name of Jesus triumphs over power and darkness, and he triumphs over all the sin in your life. And maybe like these magic artists, you're following that you're, you're, you're ready to come to Christ, but you're not ready to leave the past behind. May I commend this example to you this morning to be like these magic arts folks. Burn the ships. Leave all your sin behind. Confess it, divulge it, and come to the Lord. There's examples to follow. There's commands to obey. We've seen several throughout this, but the overarching command in the Scriptures, the command we see throughout all of Acts is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and be baptized, and leave everything else behind. Now, I hope a byproduct of this is that you see six simple questions you can ask of every passage, of what does it tell about God, people? Are there sins to avoid? Are there promises to cling to? Are there examples to follow? Are there commands to obey? But let's not stop at the byproduct. What has God shown you this morning? How will you respond to this passage? We're not just looking to know what this passage says. Yes, we must do that, but we must respond to this because the Lord will use this to open you up and expose you? What is God exposing? Who who is in your life that you need to minister to? Who has God put in your life that you need to be thankful for? Uh, Are you like Apollos? Am I being teachable? Are are you like John's disciples? Are you going to turn away and say, I will remain religious, but I will not follow Christ? Will you be like the sons of Sceva who try to use and manipulate Christ, the king, for your own gain, and this will not turn out well? Or will you be like the magic artist who leave everything behind and confess their sins and come to Christ and say, God, I know that you are all-powerful. I know that you are king. I know that you have power over all sin and darkness. I'm sick of living in the past and trying to find my own way. I'm burning the ships and I'm following Christ. The Lord teaches us this in this passage. So where, where are you this morning? Are there sins that you need to avoid? Are there promises that you need to cling to? Are there examples that you need to follow? Are there commands that you need to obey? 
What has God shown you this morning? Above all, I've hoped he's shown you that our God does miraculous things. Namely, he saves the lost. By his grace, people are still believing. By his grace, the word is still going out and his word is still prevailing mightily. Do you believe that this morning? I believe that.